Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton. Coal mining, gas prices, and oil drilling were all frequently mentioned in the recent presidential campaign, but the consequences of burning fossil fuels were not. For the first time since 1988, climate disruption was not mentioned in the presidential or vice presidential debates. And then came Sandy. Comments by New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg and Governor Andrew Cuomo ended the climate silence and put carbon pollution back in the national conversation. Some observers say Sandy will be a game changer in America's love-hate relationship with hydrocarbons. Others say concern will quickly fade with time, and many are wondering how President Obama will address energy and climate in a second term. Over the next hour, we'll discuss pointing America toward a prosperous and low-carbon future with a live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. We are joined by one of the country's leading environmental advocates and a Texas oilman. John Hofmeister is CEO of Citizens for Affordable Energy and former president of Shell Oil Company, the U.S. subsidiary of Royal Dutch Shell. He's also author of the book, Why We Hate Oil Companies, Straight Talk from an Energy Insider. Bill McKibben is founder of the advocacy group 350.org and author of Earth, Making a Life on a Tough New Planet. Please welcome them to Climate One. I'd like to begin by asking you both to respond to a recent article that appeared shortly after the election in Politico. And the lead of that article was, the energy world is wondering which Obama it will get in a second term, the liberal that Greens love or the moderate that oil industry tolerates. John Hofmeister, which President Obama do you think we will see? Let me start by saying the relationship between the president and the oil industry is viscerally negative, viscerally negative. The oil industry is one industry that candidate Obama, Senator Obama, has blasted from time when he first became in the public domain. And having dealt directly with the president when he was senator and having had conversations with him, this is a subject that he finds great difficulty with. Uh, His single-handed determination to tax the oil companies, 
which did get a lot of campaign attention during the course of the both campaigns, 2008 as well as 2012, I think is reflective of what he considers an, uh, a deliberate animosity. It's a group of executives he's never met with. While he's met with many other executives from many other industries, he's never met with the oil industry. Uh, we're debating, I'm debating, whether we should try to set up such a meeting between now and, say, the end of the year to try to get off on a good foot next year because we've got four more years, four more important years. It was announced this week that the U.S. has produced more oil uh, in terms of quantity than at any time since 1994 based upon developments on state lands with private landowners, not federal efforts, 6.8 million barrels a day. Uh, but I think the, the problem we face is there is a essentially a, a standoff between the oil and gas industry and the president because the actions and the words are inconsistent. Because he from, says he supports expanding domestic drilling. He, he says he does. The actions are completely mm-hmm. inconsistent with the words from the perspective of the oil industry. And I, I think there's a lot of symbolism in the words, but I don't think there's a lot of intent in the words. The question will be in the new administration is, I think, how much the animosity will play out through increased regulation. And the industry is expecting considerably increased regulation. This is a, a, a very unfortunate circumstance for the American economy and the American people, in my opinion, because a cooperative effort, one that meets both sustainability objectives and feeds the existing machine. Let's remember, we have an existing machine that needs to be fed meaning the 250 million cars on the road, the tens of millions of trucks and so forth, we're not going to, those aren't going to disappear anytime soon. And we can either feed the machine with imported oil or feed the machine with domestic oil. The oil and gas industry is, is really neutral on the, the issue of, of domestic or imported. I happen to be very one-sided in the sense that domestic production does a lot of good for the country, provided it's done under sustainable a regulatory uh, regime, and, and I'm fine with increasing the regulations if it's consistent across the industry. But to not develop our own domestic resources, knowing we're going to need more oil and more gas going forward, is inconsistent, I think, with the economic objectives of the rest of the country. Bill McKibben, do you think we'll see what kind of uh, posture from President Obama on energy? I think the question comes down to whether or not he takes seriously in the end the climate change issue, which is the underlying problem here. Uh, it is the legacy issue of all legacy issues because it will last into geologic time, and it is going to be very difficult because of the incredible obstructive power of the fossil fuel industry. Uh, we're in a real box. Uh, they've, for 25 years, kept us from doing anything about it, and now we're going to have to do big things if we have any hope of heading it off, uh, you know, we're going to have to make an all-out effort not to produce more coal and gas and oil here and around the world because we've already got way more carbon in the atmosphere than we can deal with. I'm, you know, I sometimes, since I wrote the first book about all this 25 years ago, sometimes I have to resist the impulse to say, if only you'd paid attention then, you know, um, because there are a lot of things that we could have done 25 years ago that we can't do now because we've filled the atmosphere. Look look, look what happened in this last year. The most important story in the last year was not, in the end, the presidential election. The most important story of the last year was, A, the warmest year in American history, B, 
epic drought across the most fertile farmland in the world. We made it too hot to grow corn and soybeans across the Midwest. C, uh, we broke one of the largest physical features on Earth. By the time the melt season ended in the Arctic in September, basically summer sea ice in the Arctic was clearly on its way out. And D, as a kind of metaphor for all the other extreme weather of the year, Hurricane Sandy. Uh, uh, truly amazing new set of images for our mental scrapbook of what this looks like. The greatest city in the world underwater, water pouring into the subway tunnels, into the Holland Tunnel. I mean, you know, would that we had listened when this happened in Bangladesh or Pakistan or Africa or any of the other places where we've seen this kind of stuff. But when it happened in Manhattan, people looked at it in a different way. And the proof of that, I think, was the cover of that radical rag business week, the, uh, the, the week after... In big yellow letters, it said, it's global warming stupid. Global warming is the only uh, sort of existential question that we face right now. And and uh, the only question is whether we get down to work on it or not. And, I, I, you know, the president will have some say on that, but the rest of us will have more say. If we build the movement that forces action on it, then we'll get somewhere if not, then the incredible political and financial power of the fossil fuel industry will do what it's done for the last quarter century, which is obstruct real progress. John Hoffmeister, two things in there. Uh, is there urgency around climate, or do you believe this is something that will happen over decades in time? And has the oil industry been blocking uh, progress defending its, uh, its incumbent technologies? I'm not a climatologist. I do not have the science in my mind or the understanding to profess the linkage between what is arguably a changing climate and the relationship to carbon in the atmosphere. My mind can't connect it. I'm a practical person. What I can connect, what I can connect is the irresponsible waste management or lack of waste management that occurs in this country and around the world. It is irresponsible of any human being to pollute their neighbor's air, water, or land. And yet we have as a society, continuously, and, and getting worse, not better, we are polluting our neighbor's land. When we prepare a meal, we make a mess in the kitchen, we clean up the kitchen. Uh, both we clear the air, we wash the dishes, we get rid of the dirty water. What we don't do from the standpoint of the economic relationship in the social relationship is required that that be done in all of our activities. And, and so I understand the point of global scientists. I understand the point of global warming. I understand the point of public policy needed to address this ominous forecast that Bill describes. But if you can't get down to the basic practical uh, balance between managing our waste, which can be done, we have the technology. We've done wonders on physical waste. We've done a lot of good work on liquid waste. But we have done marginally almost nothing on gaseous waste. And that's what I describe in my book. I, I think that we can and should aggressively, across the board, deal with waste management. Because absent that, 
Uh, I, I disagree with Bill on the fossil fuel industry operating some homogeneous faction or fashion, because I was part of the United States Climate Action Partnership during my time at Shell, which advocated a cap-and-trade system and actually helped design the cap-and-trade system that went up to Waxman and Markey until the process of the Congress created an an unsupportable bill. And the Senate didn't even take it up. And the House barely passed it because it was unworkable in its design versus what was presented to them when it was originally designed. So I'm not... I'm not opposed to climate change, advoca- climate change advocacy, but I don't think you get there through rhetoric. You get there through action. Well, one way to get there is to internalize the cost of fossil fuels. We currently use the atmosphere as an unpriced sewer, and that would mean raising the price of fossil fuels and perhaps affecting uh, fossil fuel company profits, etc. You're head of a company called Citizens for Affordable Energy. If we start to put, internalize that waste, prices may go up. And I think that's an affordable proposition because we're healthier, we drive more fuel-efficient vehicles, et cetera, and we shift away from the internal combustion engine. If we cannot get off the internal combustion engine with all the technology that we have available to us, shame on us. And so I'm a strong advocate of moving away from the internal combustion engine, which eliminates 40% of the oil we consume. But getting support for that, it is pricier in the beginning, until we reach the tipping point of, of scale manufacturing. But whether it's battery cars or hydrogen fuel cells or public transportation, we don't need internal combustion engines any, any longer than it takes to transition away from them. That would be a big step forward. Bill McKinnell? Well, I mean, the reason that we haven't made that transition is not because we lack the technology. It's because the fossil fuel industry has made sure that we keep the price of fossil fuel artificially low. This is the only industry in the world that doesn't have to pay to take out its waste. And they have defended that right zealously for a very long time. They were the biggest contributors to this last election cycle, just like the one before. And most of that money, uh, you know, the uh, uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce was the biggest contributor in the 2010 election cycle, busily defending against any serious legislation on climate, they want 93% of their campaign donations to climate deniers. Uh, We need to say, we need to face once and for all the fact that we've got to now keep carbon in the ground, that we cannot be doing what we're doing. So, I mean, think, for example, about what Shell did in, you know, seven or eight years ago. It looked around at the fact that global warming was melting the Arctic And instead of saying we need to transition into becoming a renewable energy company, they said this is a great opportunity to go up and apply for permits to drill in this melting Arctic so we can get some more carbon out of it. In fact, Shell sold off its renewable energy divisions, uh, you know, in the last part of the last decade. That's the kind of stuff that we just can't keep doing. And saying that, you know, one can't connect in one's mind carbon and uh, uh, the changes going around on the planet now just isn't acceptable anymore. The, uh, the, the world's scientists have made that connection in profound and deep ways. They do it over and over again. There's a story on the front page of the Washington Post today from the national Kevin Trenberth at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration saying, very bad news, that all our, uh, uh, the new the series of new studies on water in the atmosphere showing that we can expect 
results from global warming to come in at the very top range, the worst estimates of what we've been going on. This just gets worse and worse, and that's why there's this movement starting to build. Uh, you know, we managed to have the biggest civil disobedience action in 30 years last year about any issue, 1,253 people who went to jail to stop at least for a while that Keystone pipeline that would have poured as much oil out of the tar sands of Canada as the new automobile mileage regulations would save. No, we can't keep making these trade-offs anymore. We've got to get serious, finally. And that means continuing to build that kind of popular uprising. We just launched at 350.org this 21 If I seem a little groggy, it's because we're doing 21 cities in 21 nights and crossing the country on a biodiesel bus. And it's a lot of fun sleeping in the back of a bus. Uh, uh, All my rock star fantasies are diminishing, you know, uh, by the hour. But um, um, we've had huge crowds, and the politicians are starting to listen. The mayor of Seattle stood up on stage two nights ago and said, we're figuring out, I'm talking with my treasurer about how we're going to divest our money, city money, from fossil fuel companies. Yesterday, the first college in America uh, uh, to make the decision, they made the announcement yesterday, Unity College in Maine, that they would divest all their portfolio from fossil fuel companies. Because this is a moral issue, like, say, apartheid in South Africa 25 years ago when 200 colleges did that exact thing and helped bring to an end one of the scourges we faced then. We're showing a piece of film as we go around the country from one of our advisors at 350.org, Desmond Tutu, who won the Nobel Prize for his work on, on apartheid. And what he says in that is, this is the next great moral challenge that we face. On top of the physical and practical challenge, it is the moral challenge of all time because what we're doing as we raise the temperature, is not just make our own lives hard. If that's all we were doing, uh, well, I, you know, we'd, we'd be fools, but it would be one thing. What we're doing is making life impossible for the poorest people on the planet who are grappling this summer with the 40% rise in food prices, and we're making life impossible for everybody who has to come after us on a planet deeply degraded. We've already taken this Earth out of the Holocene. The question is, how far into whatever comes next we're going to go. And that's why we're rising up. So, John Hoffmeister, let's get you on pressuring oil companies' divestiture. Will that have an impact? Is this a moral issue? I think the moral issue that should be faced first and foremost is to take special interest money out of the American political process. As long as special interest money from any source, from any special interest group, dominates the voice of the people of this country, uh, I think it's, it's an abuse of free speech which was never imagined by the founders who wrote freedom of speech as a basic right of Americans. There was no such thing as lobbyists and special interests and so forth. And so we have perpetrated upon ourselves as a nation $6 billion spent in the last election to stay even, to make essentially no change. Lowest voter turnout in the last three elections with the issues we face as a country? Because how many people give up when the special interests are buying candidates here or candidates there? So to me, if we're not going to deal with special interest money in the political process, any other kind of conversation is just 
an academic exercise because it's the political process. Now, it's fine and it's wonderful for intelligent people to come together and discuss what the scientists know and to try to act on what the scientists know. And I'm not going to argue against the scientists. I'm not qualified to do that. But I would it would indicate that scientists over the years have not always been correct. And I'm not saying that they're incorrect on this, uh, this issue of linking carbon in the atmosphere to climate change. But what I am saying is that, to your point, if the activity is directed against a particular industry, as in the case of fossil fuel in the United States, all that will happen in the United States of America is this nation will get poorer and the rest of the world will have more oil and natural gas. Because we don't run the world in this country. We're a part of the world. We share the world. We perhaps use more than our fair share in the current scheme of things because we're wealthier. But there is no affordable energy mix that can be imagined today and implemented today to achieve the lifestyles that people practice today without carbon energy. It just can't happen you know what? with what we know today. But Shell and Oil seemed to be giving up by selling its renewable energy portfolio. It's not even trying. No, no I was part of that. I, I, I was part of that decision-making process. We were selling to consumers junk technology. And it felt that it was just wrong to do that. Silicon-based photovoltaic cells. What a waste of money, ladies and gentlemen, to get 8 to 9% efficient electricity when the sun shines and to pretend that this is going to take care of your electricity needs. We felt it was just wrong that this technology was outdated. We took all the money from the sale of photovoltaic. We put it into the next generation of technology called thin film because that would double the technology, the efficiency from photovoltaic to thin film. And let's put that money into better technology. I still think thin film is nowhere near what it needs to be to compete with other sources of energy. Shell's still in the wind business, because the wind business makes a lot more common sense. And why wouldn't you take advantage of a free source? But we're not going to spend shareholder money on technology that you know doesn't work. That's why. In the case of the Arctic, Bill brought up the Arctic. I was part of that as well. If a company like Shell, which has some of the best technology in the world, doesn't get to help set the standard for Arctic production, knowing that Arctic production will occur because the U.S. Congress or the U.S. country can't stop it, the Russians, the Chinese, other uh, companies will go to the Arctic. There's no way to stop that. If the standard can't be set to protect the environmental risk, and Shell is probably best positioned of any company to set the standard, then let's go do that. Because the world as we know it will demand carbon fuel every day from now for the next 30, 40, 50 years. If you look at the gas lines in the aftermath of Sandy in New York. They've had to go to odd-even rationing, and I'm glad they did. I recommended it a week ago on CNBC because the demand is so great. People are tied to their gas tanks, and if we don't find a way to keep those gas tanks full while we find a replacement technology, 
You know, we found a lot of the replacement technology. The German energy minister in the conservative government of Angela Merkel said Monday that Germany was going to blow past their target for renewable energy, that they'd be at 50% by 2025 and nearing, they might be at 66%. They're the one big country that took this seriously, that didn't let the fossil fuel industry stop them from doing things. Uh, you're absolutely right that uh, special interest money is the problem, and that special interest money comes from the fossil fuel industry. You know, when you were running Shell, you were a faithful member of the uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce and of the American Petroleum Institute, which are the two biggest sources of this dirty energy money that, you know, it warps, you know, it's not only that carbon warps our atmosphere, it's that that money warps our politics. And we'll get both of them out. I mean, our, our demand as we talk about divestment from fossil fuel is twofold. One, that companies stop lobbying in Washington. So there we're in agreement. And two, I guess, and two, that they stop exploring for new hydrocarbons. Uh, I wrote a piece this summer in Rolling Stone that went oddly viral. It was the issue with Justin Bieber on the cover. Um, <laughs> But the editor said, you know, called me a couple of days later and said, something very strange is happening. Your piece has ten times more likes on Facebook than Justin Bieber. And the, and the reason was that it laid out, finally, the math in a way that people could understand. Uh, the one thing that the world has agreed on, every country, including China and the U.S., is that two degrees of global warming is too much. It's definitely too much because one degree, what we've had so far, melts the Arctic. Two degrees is way too much, but it's the one thing we've agreed on. We know how much carbon it would take to take us past two degrees. We can burn about 550 gigatons more CO2 between now and 2050. But what the article pointed out, and this is new stuff that came from financial analysts around the world, the fossil fuel industry, the shells of the world, already have in their reserves... 2,800 gigatons worth of carbon, uh, five times more than we can burn. Shell, in its reserves alone, has 5% of the carbon necessary to break the planet. One company with one CEO, one board of directors. This is, you know, this is the gravest problem we've ever faced. And all the sort of talk about let's take a long time and figure out all the easiest possible ways to do it and whatever, we're past that. Uh, it's time now that we grapple with the fact that it's our generations that will or will not decide how all this comes out. Uh, uh, the good news is that the engineers and entrepreneurs, uh, given a chance, will do an awful lot of work. The other good news, and this is a place where I very much agree with John, is that it's going to have to be done globally. That's why 350.org works in 191 countries around the world, every country but North Korea. Uh, in India on Saturday, we're having a huge Quit Coal India Day. On Saturday, across the Arab world, we're working with the Arab Youth Climate Movement on a huge series of rallies and demonstrations. We've had about 20,000 of these in the last four years all around the world. It's a big, growing movement, and it's starting to bite the year-long delay in the Keystone Pipeline, and we'll see what happens now that the president's been reelected was something that nobody in the fossil fuel industry expected, and they spent a lot of money trying to make sure that that thing would go through as planned. Uh, but people started getting in the way. 
And people are going to start getting in the way in a lot of places the more they see things like Sandy and the more they realize, stranded after Sandy, that they'd be a hell of a lot better off instead of waiting in gas lines with a good, dispersed, diffuse, renewable energy network where, you know, their electric car was running off the solar panel on their roof. Uh, that's completely possible. That's how, you know, my house roof is covered with solar panels, and I can plug in the plug-in hybrid uh, 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 to run right off it. That's what the future of the world looks like, and it's not endlessly far off. You can go to the Ford GM dealership today and come home with a car that you can run off the sun, and it works just as well as anybody else's car. Let me uh, remind if you're just joining us, our guests today are Climate One are Bill McKibben, founder of 350.org, and John Hoffmeister, former president of Shell Oil Company and CEO of Americans for Affordable Energy. Um, John Hoffmeister, Shell used to be heavily invested in coal, and it exited coal. Why? In the late 1990s, uh, I, I would submit that Shell, Royal Dutch Shell as a company, was in a sense, ahead of its time relative to its competitors in looking at the global effects of fossil fuel and decided that uh, to put more shareholder money investing into coal with all the obstacles that coal would face as time moved on was not a good use of the money. And so it determined to divest itself of coal, let others who prefer to fight that complexity uh, have at the assets, and then in 1998, Shell decided in its strategic outlook on the future to move away from oil and towards natural gas without making a big public splash in either case on the reality that let's not promise what we can't deliver. Let's not build an expectation that isn't realistic because for as long as anyone sitting around that table, when, when I was sitting around that table back then, said, look, we'll all be dead and we're still going to be using fossil fuels. Uh, let me tell you how hard the alternative is. Next Thursday, I convene as the chairman of the Department of Energy's Hydrogen Technology Advisory Committee, our last meeting of the year. We're going to review the National Petroleum Industry's report out from last August that looks at the future, as requested by Secretary Chu, that looks at the future of transportation fuels and the opportunity to reduce greenhouse gases by 50% by 2050. The National Petroleum Council conclusion, looking at all of the objectives, looking at all of the possibilities, looking at all fuels, including electrification of transportation. Although that report really did soft-pedal electric cars. It didn't look at it that seriously. But it, it made the point, and that Secretary Chu actually toughened the requirement, what will it take to go to 50% lower greenhouse gases? They couldn't get there by 2050. Now, you could argue they weren't aggressive enough. But I'm sitting there. Some, I'm, I'm some groups left that obviously. study because it wasn't aggressive. But I'm sitting there with this committee. I'm now the chairman. They elected me as the chairman. We're facing an administration that has cut back on the spending for hydrogen fuel cell technology from the prior administration. The administration actually zeroed the budget for hydrogen fuel cell technology for transportation when it first came into office. Congress reinstated it. We have a group of dedicated volunteers. We're all special government employees, which means we're government employees and we don't get paid. Uh, it's a special category. We're volunteers. But the resistance is not just an industry. 
The resistance is the bureaucracy. The resistance is the politics. Well, in that case, Secretary Chu believes that hydrogen is not a very promising form of energy. It takes a lot of energy to generate hydrogen, and we can debate hydrogen. But what I wanted to get at with that, with that coal example was that Shell exited coal because it saw it as a loser of a business, and it's moving away from oil to gas. Do you think Shell will ever exit oil? Does it see the, pro- the horizons for oil also diminishing or facing more social resistance because of climate change? Well... If, if you stand back and look at all of the literature across the industry when it comes to transportation, the world's headed for two billion cars. How much percentage of those cars will be based on internal combustion engines that fundamentally only use gasoline? Uh, unless we find an alternative to gasoline, unless we find an alternative to petroleum-based fuel, uh, I think we're, we're, we're stuck with growing demand of oil over the next 25 years not reducing the demand, unless we could find a substitute. Now, I work with, I'm on the Energy Security Council, which is a group of some 25 former presidential appointees and a few business leaders, and our advocacy is to take natural gas, half the carbon of oil, and make methanol from natural gas, which with flex fuel internal combustion engines, can displace significant amount of oil and, and, redu- and have a more favorable environmental impact at the same time. The methanol opportunity is huge with all the natural gas we have in this country. We're pursuing it. I was on the phone this morning. How do we build the kind of reformer units across the country that could supply methanol as an alternative? But we need flex fuel engines. Let's get uh, Bill McKibben's natural gas is seen by some people as a promise, as a bridge. It's American. It's cleaner. Is that a a good step to make? Well, Two, there are two huge problems. One is we say it's cleaner because you produce less carbon when you burn it. The trouble is natural gas is CH4, methane. It's molecule for molecule, 25 times more potent greenhouse gas. So do the math. If 2% leaks out in the course of the process, then it's dirtier than coal. The only study we really have of how much leaks out was in science in January, the big uh, gas field in Colorado, and it was finding 4% leakage rates. So uh, that's one problem. The other problem is, and this is exemplified by this plan to do a lot of natural gas vehicles and things, it undercuts the transition to, to gas undercuts renewables more quickly even than it undercuts coal. The IEA, the International Energy Agency, modeled what happened with a world that converted very quickly to gas, got off everything else, and that world, because renewables get uh, uh, aced out of the picture, that world is 660 parts per million CO2, and the temperature goes up 3.5 degrees Celsius, uh, twice as much almost as the most conservative government on Earth says would be safe. Our job is not to figure out how to, you know, keep the fossil fuel industry going with some other, you know, fossil fuel that's a little marginally better. Our job is to figure out how to provide the energy that people need in ways that will allow the planet to keep working. So to the degree that we have to have cars, and, you know, there are lots of other things we can substitute in lots of places, like, say, trains and bicycles and feet, um, um, but to the extent that we continue to have to have cars, well, the clear answer is to electrify them and to get the electricity from renewable sources. It's entirely doable. It's not cheap to do, but we've got to start figuring out what real cost economics looks like. You know, uh, The one good set of estimates we have about what the 
economic impact of global warming will be from the Stern report in the UK a few years ago was that it might add up to 20% of the planet's GDP uh, uh, by the end of the um, uh, century. Uh, Exxon, I don't know what the number is for Shell. You could probably tell us, but Exxon spends, boasts about spending $100 million a day, $100 million a day, looking for new hydrocarbons, even though we already have five times more than anybody says we can safely burn. Think what $100 million a day from just one company would do spent on solar panels. Uh, think how quickly we'd be rolling this out. Uh, Bill McKibben mentioned uh, uh, electric cars. John, you know the book uh, by Steve Cole, Pulitzer Prize-winning author on ExxonMobil, Private Empire. And in there, he writes that the one thing that ExxonMobil worried about was a breakthrough in in battery technology. That could really threaten their business model and their profits. And what do you think about a breakthrough in uh, battery technology in, in electric cars? Well, I've already stated my position on internal combustion engines. And, and so I, I pray for a breakthrough because I, I think some – Bill and I actually agree in the end game. We just don't agree with how quickly we can get there. Uh, and I'm a pragmatist in that regard, not a theorist. And, and so I think that the breakthrough in battery technology is still elusive. We watched 300 Fisker cars in the port of New Jersey get flooded – and about a dozen of them caught fire in the midst of a flood. That's not going to do a lot for Fisker's reputation. The battery technology of today is just not going to get us there as a mass market vehicle. Niche vehicle, fine, those who can afford it. But for a mass market vehicle, I spent yesterday, I, I teach at Arizona State in the Global Institute of Sustainability. I took my students through an exercise yesterday what would a mass market of electric cars look like in Phoenix, Arizona on a holiday weekend? And how would we go about supplying batteries if the vast majority of cars in the fleet were electric? And it was a tremendous exercise for the students to go through, but it pointed out the challenges that we face. You know what? We solved this battery problem by doing the plug-in hybrid. Ninety percent of the time, people don't need the amount they drive in the course of a day falls within the range of that battery. And then you have this backup for the engine, small engine for the times you need otherwise. And it's not unaffordable. You can go buy a Ford Fusion today with a plug-in hybrid vehicle, and it's, you know, uh, with it's about 30 some thousand dollars, it's less than the average cost of an average vehicle in this country, and it works just fine. Uh, we don't, this is not like some science fiction thing that's impossible to imagine. It's at the showroom now. I think in terms of the broader implications of your question, we can ultimately innovate and use ever-increasing valuable technology as we should. That's our history as a people. But we have to, you know, invest in it. And whether it's companies or the U.S. government, we have fallen down as a nation, as a society, in tolerating and in, affor- in paying for real serious research and development. If we go back to the 1960s and the John F. Kennedy-led race to the moon and the amount of technology, the amount of research and development that went into the nation, you saw s- upward slopes in spending. The slopes are all now flatter down. And, and that's not what's going to get us for. I support President Obama's statement the other day on, 
on the import. Yes, I think this was this morning he said it. On, on the need for more investment in technology and innovation so that we're the leaders, not the followers. But we haven't done it. That's why I think we've slowed down so much and in should innovation. Should oil companies also invest more in cleaner technologies? I think you have to leave that to the individual oil companies. Some will, some won't. Anybody that thinks the oil companies are monolithic or homogeneous, think again. They're not. They compete vigorously. And there is research going on in the Exxon laboratories today for biofuels that exceeds what any other company is doing. Good for them. There's research going on in other oil companies, Chevron and Shell and so forth, to figure out what is its competitive advantage, what will its niche be to turn the tables on the future, to earn returns for their shareholders. They don't think alike. They don't act alike. And, and, you know, so they're not – they're organized around API, yes. I wouldn't deny that. Or the Chamber of – American Petroleum Institute or Chamber of Commerce. But the important point is to be at the table. If I wasn't at the table in the Chamber of Commerce or the American Petroleum Institute, I wouldn't be expressing my views. But I express the same views to Francis Beinecke at NRDC. Yeah, but you stuck right with the Chamber of Commerce when they were sending 93% of their campaign money off to climate deniers. I mean, you might have been behind the scenes expressing your views. We wouldn't know, but in public, that's that's what happened. I didn't quit. If you quit, you're gone. You're out of there. Well, you would have had exactly the same result, and people would have known that you were upset with them, um, which nobody did. The process doesn't work that way. If you're not at the table... There's no voice there, you know, and then it then it becomes a reactionary you problem. Said, you said a minute ago that you were a pragmatist, not a theorist, but I don't think that that's really correct. At this point, pragmatism demands all-out grappling with this problem. We melted the Arctic this summer. When you start losing your big physical features of the planet, that's a pragmatic threat that needs to be dealt with, not in the long distance sometime far out from now. It needs to be dealt with now and urgently, and not by saying, let's try to keep our advantage going for a while, and maybe we'll think of something to come up with next. It means taking, I mean, it's a good idea to go do some more research, but in the meantime, let's deploy every single tool we have as fast as we can, and the way that we'll do that is overcoming, one of the ways is overcoming the fossil fuel industry's unwillingness to put a price on carbon. You guys are the only ones, you're the only ones in the world who get to put your waste out for free. You go down the street to a restaurant, you know, uh, kitchen closes at the end of the night. They're not allowed to just shovel the garbage out into the middle of the street. Uh, that would be uncivilized. Only the fossil fuel industry gets to pour CO2 out without a price. Economists for a quarter century have said, internalize that externality, but always it's the APIs of the world that keep it from happening. Phil McKibben is author of uh, Earth, the Living on a, Making a Life on a Challenging New Planet, also founder of 350.org. Other guest today at Climate One is John Hoffmeister, former president of Shell Oil Company. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Bill McKibben, I'd like to ask you about climate and polls, and then we're going to go shortly to audience questions. Uh, but the reality is when Americans are asked about climate change, it ranks very low toward the bottom in terms of their concerns, economy, jobs, health, etc. So Politicians get criticized for not mentioning climate, but the fact is, American people in polls, it's not a top concern. So here's the good news. That's changing fast. Uh, the Rasmussen poll out this morning shows 68% of Americans think that it's a very serious problem. 
74% of Americans are clear that the climate is warming. It's hard to get 74% of Americans to agree on anything, okay? I mean, half this country believes Elvis is still alive, you know? So this is a, this is a start. Um, um, that in, that th- those responses have all spiked dramatically in the last couple of years because 80% of Americans live in counties that have had a federally declared disaster. I mean, we watch what's happening. Now what we need is some real leadership from government, from industry, to uh, take that and run with it hard. To, that's, why, that's why, theoretically, we call them leaders, you know, uh, uh, as opposed to, you know, poll-following devices or what, whatever. Um, um, I think John would agree with you there. John, leadership has not been what it should be. Well, lead- leadership in this country needs a broom handle down its back, if you ask me. To, to be blunt about it, but I have to, I can't that's, let that's Bill's, very blunt. I can't let Bill's last statement stand on the fossil fuel industry being the only industry that gets to put its garbage out for free. The American consumer, ladies and gentlemen, is not paying the price, the full price of, for electricity across this entire nation because every state in this country is emitting one way or another gaseous waste that we all get the benefit of a lower electricity price because the public utility commissions around this country, virtually all 50 states, know that if they put a price on emissions that affected the electricity price, they wouldn't hold their jobs. So this is not to be blamed solely on the fossil fuel industry. This is a societal issue that affects every consumer of electricity, every consumer of transportation fuels, and let's not just focus and concentrate on, on a pejorative associated with an industry called fossil fuel industry. This is an endemic problem, and while 74% may agree, go back to the polls, may agree this is a big problem, how much more are people willing to take in their electricity price or their gasoline price to do something about that's it? That's why we need the, the, the one of the good things that's happened in the last year or two is the real emergence of, of really forward-thinking uh, solutions. And the best is this thing, fee and dividend, that people have begun talking about. You put a honking price on fossil fuel, you know, make Shell at the wellhead pay a lot of money, and they pass the price on at the pump, which is good. You know, we should be paying European levels at the pump because then each time we went to the pump, we'd be reminded that it does not require a semi-military vehicle to collect your groceries, you know. Um, But then you take all the money that you collect from that and you just write a check for everybody in the country for their share. Because if the sky belongs to anybody, it belongs to all of us, not to Shell, you know. Eighty percent of Americans come out ahead in that kind of scheme. If you use huge amounts of energy, you don't. If you own a Learjet, you don't. But at this point, you probably shouldn't really be owning a Learjet. You know? As some environmental liberals do. Um, the um... <laughs> I have a biodiesel bus, you know, for uh, the month, so I'm... Uh, British Columbia, by the way, is doing exactly what uh, Bill McKibben just said. They have a carbon tax, and it's, it's it refunded to people so that it's revenue neutral. Uh, we're going to invite your participation. Uh, if you're on this side of the audience, please go around. The line starts over there with our producer, Jane Ann. Uh, we're going to get as many as we can. We'll uh, promise uh, brisk questions and brisk answers. We invite you one one-part question. If you need help keeping it brief, I'm here for you. And um, <laughs> then we'll get through as many as we can. And our apologies in advance to those we can't get to. Um, 
If you're just joining us, our guests here at Climate One today are John Hoffmeister, former president of Shell Oil, and Bill McKibben, the environmental advocate. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about energy and the recent election. Let's have our audience question. Yes, sir. Hi. My name is Angelo Festa. I'm a resident in San Francisco. I just want to, more than anything, share with this audience the fact that since April of 2011, I have driven about 20,000 miles without purchasing a single gallon of gasoline. What that means is when BP announced their $4 billion quarterly profit, I didn't contribute a cent. I just want you to know, folks, it's a great feeling to drive an electric car because you sleep better at night. You know you're not part of the problem. And it's very doable. It's the technology's here. You don't have to wait for better batteries. The technology's here, and there are affordable models. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, as an EV owner, I would say they're fun to drive, too. Uh, let's have our next audience question. Yes. Okay. Hi. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Carlene Cullen, and I'm a Bay Area mom who started a climate change program for kids about six years ago. It's expanded now to 23 states, and we're reaching about 250,000 kids and their families. These kids are young. They're K through 5. They're so full of hope. When we teach them about uh, carbon and climate change, and we tell them they can be part of the solution, they're so energetic. They run home to mom and dad. They get them to start engaging. I would like for both of our speakers to pretend this is a group of K through 5 kids, 7 to 8-year-olds, 9-year-olds, Talk to them about the future of climate change. Thank you. John, I don't know if you have grandkids that age or kids. So let's. what would you say to youth about the urgency of the solution? Well, I founded Citizens for Affordable Energy for the very purpose that she just described, but children of all ages, not just K through, five, K through 5. My story would be we are where we are over a long history of getting to where we came to but that that doesn't necessarily predict the future, that the future can be very different because we have something called technology. The technologies that we have going forward will create a very different future, and we can start describing what those technologies look like. And I would say the same thing as the other gentleman about hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. Having driven a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle, I never want to drive anything else. But technology is not enough. Would you admit that policy has to be part of the equation? K through 5, as well as children of all ages in this country, have a very difficult time with policy. You're absolutely right. I agree so, with so you. So do adults. You're absolutely yeah. right. But, but getting from where we are to public policy, we just spent $6 billion to stay in place, as I said earlier, in the, in the past election. Americans have a difficult time grappling with the, con- the, the, com- the complexity of getting public policy uh, to where it actually has meaning. So, Bill McKibben? I find K through 5 deals really well with policy. Clean up after yourself <laughs> is a, um, you know, sort of universal that's really good with young kids. But now, and with, when I talk with young kids like that, what I say is, here are some of the pictures, the 40,000 pictures in our Flickr account at 350.org from actions all over the world. Look at them, because you'll see that they're led by young people all over the world and many of them quite young, uh, uh, that you can be a part of this powerful, growing movement. And that's what people of all ages need. The thing that's scary about global warming is it seems too big for any one of us to take on by ourselves. And indeed, it is too big for any one of us to take on by ourselves. But we're no longer by ourselves. When you talk with kids, you have to give them some sense of agency, of power, that 
coming together to make this thing all right. And we are. I don't know whether we can do it in time because we have very powerful forces on the other side. But by God, we're giving it a good fight. Do you accept, though, John Hoffmeister's point that it's individual responsibility, that those individuals, everyone listening to this on the radio in this room, have to accept some responsibility? It's not just blaming the bad oil company. Absolutely. But nobody that I know of cares at all whether their power comes from the sun and the wind or fossil fuel. In fact, almost everybody would rather it came from clean sources. The only people who are spending hundreds of millions of dollars a day lobbying to make sure that it keeps coming from dirty sources are the fossil fuel industry. That's because that's where their bacon is, you know. And and so that's why, I, I mean, I don't mean to hurt anybody's feelings. And, you know, we're, we're, we're all, uh, you know, very few of us, You know, we're beyond the K through 5 level here, so I figure we just talk absolutely openly. But that's why we have to to oppose the fossil fuel industry in vigorous and powerful ways because they're at bottom the driver of this continued uh, uh, craziness that's, you know, melting the Arctic, acidifying the ocean, doing things that five-year-olds should not have to hear about because as adults we should have stepped up long ago and take not looked at the melting Arctic and said, let's drill for oil there, looked at the melting Arctic and said, my God, what are we doing? Let's have our next audience question. Jerry Hinkle, I'm an economist um, and a member of Citizens Climate Lobby and a question for you, Mr. Hoffmeister. Um, Economists pretty much universally believe that charging firms for pollution will improve both our environment and the economy. Bill has provided a great suggestion, raise those revenues, give them right back to people. It sounds consistent with your objectives. Would you be willing to ask the API and the Chamber of Commerce to support a price on carbon? Well, I've been public in, 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 in exactly that, to the point they're tired of hearing me. Because it, it, to me, it, it is, it's why I was for, for a cap-and-trade system, which effectively, in a different way, puts a price on carbon. I consider it an, an incentive-type system rather than a punitive-type system. But whether it's one or the other, the price on carbon is, you know, I think it's a manageable proposition. I think how we go about it and who pays is an important policy discussion. But I haven't been opposed in principle ever to putting some kind of responsibility on consumers and producers to do what can be done in order to, you know, move this this whole thing forward. And I thought long and hard before I joined Shell back in 1997 about whether I wanted to get into this game and decided that was the right thing to do because you can work inside the tent more effectively than outside the tent. Why did ExxonMobil support a carbon tax? Because it wouldn't pass. I mean, I'm saying that rather cynically, and I realize that. But at the time, if you notice, there's been dead silence on a carbon tax ever since the election of 2010 and ever since Waxman market went south. Some conservative circles are looking at British Columbia as a model and thinking about recognizing if cap-and-trade is political poison, carbon tax, fee and dividend, some mechanism, people recognize there's going to be a price on carbon. And and to be fair to ExxonMobil, because I was just cynical about them, they promoted the carbon tax because they felt – the cap-and-trade was too complex for people to understand. Uh, we disagreed. I sat at the table with ExxonMobil across. We discussed it. We debated it. And and so we found out the cap-and-trade couldn't get through Congress. Uh, so maybe a carbon tax could. 
We'll see what happens, if anything. But having just listened to all of the president's remarks over the last two years, the deafening silence on climate has been remarkable. And we'll see if anything changes come January 20th. We're discussing America's energy future with John Hoffmeister, former president of Shell Oil, and the advocate Bill McKibben. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's have our next audience question. Hi, everybody. My name is Clara Vondrich. I'm the director of leadership initiatives at the Climate Works Foundation. I want to thank you both for being here, especially Mr. Hoffmeister. You're really brave to come into this liberal hotbed known as Climate One. Um, I really appreciate you being here. It's important to have the debate with all sides. Um, but I did want to say in the same breath, don't believe the hype. You know, I, I disagree with almost everything you, that you said, aside from the need for campaign finance reform, which I think is vital, and I think most people would agree. Um, but as far as the delay tactics, the smoke screens, the red herrings, such as, oh, you know, we need to just put much more money in R&D. Um, we need to be the first people in the Arctic so we can set the right standards. If we don't drill the oil, somebody else will. These are smoke screens. These are red herrings. There are reasons for delay, and I'm not going to buy into them. Um, there is hope, on the other hand, I'll just mention, that the carbon tax debate is really, is really heating up, and there's this amazing um, groundswell among conservatives. We just had at Climate Works Eli Lehrer, who's the former member of the Heartland Institute, who left this summer to start his own shop in opposition to Heartland's really kind of scathing billboard campaign where they liken climate believers to Ted Kaczynski and other serial killers. Um, he left because enough was enough, and he's actually now starting a new shop in Washington calling for a carbon tax. He's working with Bob Inglis. He's working with others in the same field. And next week, AEI, Brookings Institute, will have a big carbon tax debate. Um, these are not liberal uh, liberals, as you know, and it can be streamed live. Everyone can check it out. And the tide is turning, and I hope that companies like Shell will indeed see the amazing opportunities ahead. You guys could be first movers in this field. You guys could take the lead and make a transition to a new paradigm. It's Thank up you. to you. All right. John Hoffmeister. Well, well, get out front of that parade. Thank you. And, and I have to say for the record that I'm no longer a part of Shell. I retired in 2008, but I still have great affinity for what the company has been and, and, and is doing today. Uh, I don't agree that these are smoke screen. I, no, I don't agree with the smoke screen attribution. I've been at this a long time. I've been given a lot of thought. I've dealt with the realities. There's a difference between theory and practice. If you can't fill your tank this week, you're berserk if you're a consumer. And, and when I'm saying you in a generic sense. Some of you in the room may say, well, I don't have a tank. That's fine. I don't, don't have to worry about it. That's great for your lifestyle. But every day, millions and millions of people get to work because that's their only way to get to work. And, and if those people aren't, aren't taken care of, somebody could... Rise above it all and say, I will tell you the better way. But that's an autocracy. I don't believe in autocracy. I believe in democracy. I'm all in favor of spending the rest of my days helping to educate people so they can perform an intelligent task called, or intelligent opportunity called voting. To vote for what makes common sense for them and their family. But to tell people what they should do doesn't work in our society, and the more telling that goes on, the longer it's going to take to get anything done, in my opinion. And would you agree that the faster we get off oil, the better? Absolutely. I've been, been, doing, been practicing that for years. But there is a reality today, 
And we're not getting off of it today or tomorrow or the day after. So we need the substitutions in technology. We don't have them yet. I disagree that, that the Prius or the, the, the hybrid is the solution. That may be a solution for some. But we're a big country with a lot of people with a lot of different aspirations and needs. And they're not going to buy a Prius or a Volt or, or what's on offer today. The, the market share is growing, but very, very slowly. That's, that's true, Bill McKibben. Well, yeah, I mean, but if that's the reality that you're, you know, worried most about, instead of the reality that each degree increase in global average temperature from this point is projected, the Stanford agronomists say, to cut grain yields 10%, or that uh, the ocean is becoming, its pH is steadily changing, or on and on and on. If those, are the, if, the, if the reality that really concerns you most is that someone might have to, who wants something else, might have to settle for a Prius. The reality um, that disturbs the, the reality that disturbs me the most is we don't learn. We just don't learn. And, and I'm committed to teaching. The, the, the point about way, not learning. The best way to teach at this point probably is not to tell people what to do. It's to put a serious price on carbon in the ways that we're describing so that people can then quickly learn uh, 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 what it is that is, you know, that, that our behaviors are costing. Uh, not just us, but everyone who comes after us. And that price, because we've delayed for so long, that price has to keep getting higher and higher. The one thing no one has taken issue with is the fact that we have to keep 80% of the declared reserves we've found underground at this point. That's going to be expensive because we keep delaying. And every time we say, well, let's have another presidential commission or let's spend some money on research or whatever else, we get a few more years down this road. We go past at current rates of burning carbon, that 560 gigaton figure, we go past in 15 years. That's when we go past that two-degree threshold. Uh, we don't have time for all of this. We have to make our democracy work correctly. Um, and it won't work correctly as long as API and the fossil fuel industry is pouring money here and elsewhere into making sure that nothing ever changes. Can you envision those assets in the ground becoming liabilities, John Hoffmeister? Uh, at this point, no, because China was at 5 million barrels a day of oil consumption in 2005. 10 million barrels a day in 2011. They'll be at 15 million barrels a day in 2000, uh, roughly 2015. They'll be at 20 million barrels a day consumption by 2020. Those assets in the ground will not be liabilities on a global basis. Right. China's going to grow its demand, and there's nothing the U.S. is going to do to stop it. Let's get another audience question in here at Climate One. Yes, sir. I'm Felix Kramer. I actually like the first part of this better when Bill was just talking about the reality of the issue and, and not engaging because – in a certain way, we hear ads around here of Chevron saying, let's talk. But I wonder, Bill obviously did a lot of research about Shell, and he talked about it. I wonder if you read his Rolling Stone article and if you've done that math. Because if you, as a, as a former CEO, you understand that you have a fiduciary responsibility to your company. What if, you're, if, if the things you support – a, uh, getting corporate money out of the elections and uh, car taxing carbon succeed in a – in, in getting to a situation where 80% of your industry's reserves are proscribed and globally the national oil companies, of the, you know, the nationally owned oil companies around the world, which own far more oil than the private companies, if they're proscribed also, what happens to your industry at that point? I think the industry would, 
if, if you, the scenario played out as you described it, the industry would shrink. But society would, <laughs> the economies of the world would shrink even more. And relatively, in a democracy, people wouldn't tolerate it. We don't have the consensus, ladies and gentlemen. In a democracy, we don't have the consensus. Bill and I are actually helping to contribute to the consensus by bringing separate points of view, but with common ends. And our difference, as I said earlier, I think, he may disagree, is, is largely in the timing. But until we achieve a consensus on any aspect of this, no public policy will come into effect. And you could penalize the oil companies all you want. They'll go somewhere else. They don't want to be where they're not wanted. And they pull out of countries where they're not wanted. But the world is a bigger place than the United States. And I have great respect for what Climate Works is doing because it's helping to contribute to a consensus. But the reality is people live every day in an economy and a society where they like the way they live. The The world is capable of changing. And one of the things that would help it change most is some leadership from the country that poured the most carbon into the atmosphere over the last century. The, um, the, Chinese, the Chinese are actually installing more renewable capacity than anybody on Earth. 25% of Chinese, when they take a shower at night, the hot water is coming off the roof. I spent a day with the head of the um, biggest solar uh, hot water company in China, He Min Solar, a guy named Huang Ming, an engineer. And at the end of this great day, uh, uh, he took me into his private museum. He said, there on the ground was a um, solar panel. Said, you know what that is? No, what is that? Oh, that's one of the solar panels that Jimmy Carter put on the White House in 1979. And Ronald Reagan took down in 1985 because... Basically, the fossil fuel industry didn't like the idea of solar panels up there. Um, that's proof to me that what we lack is not technology, it's political will. And the people who've been getting in the way of that political will are the fossil fuel industry. And if they get out of the way, or with if they the, help, with all then respect, we'll make some progress. With all due respect, the people who are in the way of what you're espousing are your fellow citizens and their leaders. And their leaders. They're, it is the American people who buy cars, the American people who buy gasoline, the biggest contributors to this. Who over air condition their homes and overheat their homes. Fair they enough. are the people Fair who enough. are contributing but instead to of, this. Instead of uh, trying to make everybody feel even more guilty than they already do, think for a minute about the fact that the biggest contributors in this last election cycle were people like the Koch brothers, third and fourth richest people in the country, fossil fuel barons. Think about the fact that the last election cycle, it was the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce filed a brief with the EPA. Uh, this this was, will demonstrate the extent of how engaging with them didn't work. They filed a brief with the EPA saying, don't regulate carbon because if on some strange chance that all the scientists turn out to be correct and the planet warms, it won't be a problem because humans will be able to alter their behavior and physiology in order to cope with this problem. I mean, that's the level of denial that we've had to deal with. And I'm glad now that you're out of the industry that we're, you know, and and I really do admire your work in, in coming to deal with this. But I admire even more the work of people all around the world, many of whom did nothing to cause the problem that we're dealing with, but are now standing up to say we can come together and 
figure out how to make this happen, not 50 years down the road when the temperature is five degrees higher and things like Sandy are an everyday occurrence. We can figure out, not easily, but we can figure out how to make it happen now, before we break the planet. Let's get one more our audience question. Yes, sir. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. Um, I'm Dave Masson. I'm also a member of Citizens Climate Lobby. And, uh, John, first, I also appreciate your being here today on a bit of a hot seat. And I'm wondering if you're familiar with Mark Jacobson's uh, research at Stanford that indicates we can convert the entire world to renewable energy in 20 to 40 years using technology we have now at no greater cost than what we're already spending on our energy system. And, and if you're not aware, I'd be happy to send it to you. But I, I do have a question. Uh, we're, we're really tight, so we got a big line behind you. So let's 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 get John to respond. Thank you. I, um, I'm, I'm aware. Of, I am aware of his work, and and admire it. Uh, and and you know, again, public policy is either an enabler or a disabler. And so I've been even while at Shell. So my voice is the same outside of Shell as at Shell because I, I was promoting the enabling of public policy to help these things occur, help the transition develop, uh, but it all has to also be economic. I think we're, we're, we're struggling here with how, do, how does renewable energy c- compete commercially? And I know there are arguments that just it has to reach a certain scale. I would argue it also has to reach a certain level of technology to be efficient in order to reach that scale. So let's put the enablers in place, but let's not de- deceive ourselves to believe that somehow the status quo is suddenly going to be overcome in a time frame that's not realistic. I think we mislead ourselves or mislead our young people if we say something that's just not going to happen. So that's, in that sense, I'm a pragmatist. Uh, yes, sir. Welcome to Climate One. Let's have another question. Hey, I'm Rosecrans, citizen. Uh, if the United States Congress implements some sort of economic incentive, whether it's a tax or, car- or cap and trade, and technology outperforms all expectations – and we do a great, great job, uh, but the rest of the world, China in particular, but many others don't come along and, in fact, increase. Uh, at what point, when uh, we worry about Greenland and, and Antarctica melting, do we go to a heretical solution like, like some sort of geoengineering? And as, as hopefully a, a transition or, you know, who knows, but... Do we rule that out entirely because it's so crazy, or is it part of the part of the thinking? Bill McKibben, geoengineering is uh, you know there there may come a time if if things you know if the industry stays as intransigent as they have when we have to have some kind of break the glass solution, I suppose. And but if we do, it's horrible. I mean, it's it would be the last thing to which we should turn. The idea that having filled the atmosphere with carbon, maybe now we should pour in a lot of sulfur in order to try and somehow ameliorate it. I mean, the modeling of it isn't good. Uh, the effects, the side effects will be enormous. And also, in the end, it's just kind of this horrible admission of defeat, you know, that we weren't able as a society to constrain ourselves, restrain ourselves, make the kind of creative leap in a new direction. Instead, almost like an addict, just, you know, uh, unable to, to come to terms with that addiction and clean up their lives, we just had to find some, you know, weird fix in order to try and keep going our, our, our way of life. 
So I, I hope very much that it doesn't come to that, especially since there's no real reason to think it would work even if we did it. Steve Schneider once called it planetary methadone. Um, we have to uh, have to end it there. Our thanks to John Hoffmeister, former president of Shell Oil, and Bill McKibben, founder of 3T.org. Very good. We're coming to the final one today. We're good at this, absolutely. Greg Dalton, thank you all for listening.